you have a Bible with you, open up to Romans chapter 12 this morning. Romans chapter 12. We're walking through one of the most monumental books in the Bible. Uh, it is rich, it is deep, it is complex, it is theological, it is philosophical, it is all those things. Um, and, uh, and here's what's amazing and maybe even surprising. With all of its complexities, with all of its definitions, with all of its theology, with all of these concepts and ways of understanding the world, with all of this big, sometimes complicated stuff, this letter that Paul writes to this church in Rome is really about one simple thing. It's really about one idea, and it all centers on this one idea. This letter is about how you and I can live, actually live, lives of faith. How do we live as people of faith, not just intellectually believing something, but actually living a life that is shaped by what we understand to be true of the world and to put our trust and reliance on someone other than ourselves? That's what this is all about. Um, in fact, when you read the New Testament, one of the things that you get struck by, at least for me, is when you see it, that individuals like us, we're being invited to connect with God. And, and we're not being invited to connect with God through, um, through religion or religiosity. We're not being invited to connect with him through our consistency. Like if we attend church a lot and consistently, that's how you connect with him. Like you just meet the ritual requirements. It's not through good behavior. But we are encouraged to connect to God through faith, by trusting, actually trusting God with our lives. That's the invitation. And, and, and what we've seen reiterated over and over again in Romans is that, is that we actually need to work on this trust thing. In fact, um, oftentimes people juxtapose the Old Testament and the New Testament. They say, well, the Old Testament was like this, and that's who God was, and the New Testament's like this, and it's like God had a personality change someplace. But the two are actually inseparably linked. In fact, the story that's being told throughout the scriptures is incomplete if you don't actually read the beginning pages. The beginning of the Old Testament, there's this story of how humanity's relationship with God was broken. That's, that's the point of the story. Like, what severed the relationship? Why, why was the relationship broken to begin with? And when you look at that story, that story of Adam and Eve, it was a faith situation, it was a lack of trust that broke the relationship. And now what we see in the New Testament is that it's trust that actually restores the relationship. So that's that story in the early pages of Genesis of Adam and Eve, that's actually a story about every one of us. Because undoubtedly, and, and by the way, what I'm about to say, we never say this stuff out loud, at least not in public, but this is the stuff we often think. We have trust issues with God. The way we live our lives, the way we think about the future, how we plan, how we strategize, oftentimes reveals that we have trust issues with God. Like there's times when we go, God, I don't know if I can actually trust you. Or we behave in a way that says, I don't know that I'm actually trusting you. Like there's times when I think as people, certain things happen. Certain circumstances begin to swirl around us and we think, God, I'm not sure if you have my best interests at heart. Again, we don't say that stuff out loud, but there's times we question that. I mean, all of us have at some point or another, we have thought this. We thought, I don't, I don't know that you know what's best for me, and we've taken things into our own hands. We've made decisions for ourselves. I mean, how many times have you done something and you realize, I just violated my conscience? Or how many times have you done something and you're like, I know, I know this isn't what God really desires for me or for my life, but you do it anyways because you have this deep sense like you're going to miss out on something. Like, I know there's something good and you're holding it back from me, God. Like, I know there's something out there and you're, you don't want me to have fun or you don't want me to have pleasure, whatever it might be. And so we do these things. We all have that story. 
And we have that story because all the way back at the very beginning, there was this human decision that God can't really be trusted. That you probably, catch this, that you probably can trust yourself and your instincts more than you can trust God. That was the story from the very beginning. And so the relationship was broken then, and the relationship is broken today for the same reason. So it would make sense that when Jesus comes, he would repair this relationship the way it was broken, right? He would repair it the way it was broken, that he would replace this thing, that if trust is what broke it, then trust is what's going to fix it. Um, in fact, over the years, Sherry and I, we, we bought a, a lot of like fixer-uppers. Anybody ever bought a fixer-upper of a house? You done that before? Somebody, a couple of you, you know what this is like? You spend way too much time at Home Depot for the rest of your life. It's like, we call them fixer-uppers. We probably should call them fixers sideways or something because I'm not sure we actually did much to improve the houses. They just look better. In fact, there are times, uh, and this isn't in my notes. I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but there's times when uh, I would like lay in bed and worry about the people that bought our house. You ever done that before? You're like, I hope that roof's still standing. Like that would be bad if it fell in on them. And, and uh, there was one house, again, I'm just leaving my notes. I would just, I would drive by this one house that we like fixed, fixed up and I would drive by all the time and just pray like, Lord, just keep it together one more day for their sake and mine. Just keep it together, you know. But, but there are a lot of things we would have to replace over the years. And you can prop things up to a certain extent. But if, if you're like fixing a support beam, you actually have to replace the beam. You can't just leave it propped up. The challenge is I think oftentimes in our faith, we sort of prop up our faith with all these other things that aren't actually trust. They aren't actually faith. We, we prop ourselves up with empty religion. We prop ourselves up with good works, like good behavior, with um, faith statements, or we argue vehemently our perspective, and we do all these things, but they actually aren't real, tangible faith. That's not actual trust that we're building in our life. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the relationship doesn't get healed and it doesn't get any more intimate because we're not actually trusting. Your, your faith, like your actual trust of God, is important to him because God wants relationship with you. And your relationship, your intimacy with God grows in correlation to your trust of him. By the way, that's... That's true of just about every relationship, isn't it? Intimacy is tied to trust. Um, my wife, she knows more about me than anyone on the planet. Sometimes I'm surprised she comes to church here because she knows so much, right? She like, actually sits through my preaching. But, but she, she knows so much, and the more I trust her and the more she trusts me, the better, the more open, the more honest our relationship becomes. Our intimacy grows through our trust of one another. So Paul is writing, and his number one concern is that we, that you and me, would learn how to truly trust God. And the verses that we're looking at today, he's going to give us an encouragement. And if we're going to follow this out, if we're actually going to do what he's telling us to do and live out what he's t telling us to live out, it's going to require a significant amount of trust, trusting God with our lives. So I want to read in verse 3. Last week we covered verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. And in verse 3, Paul says this, and we'll start walking through these next few verses. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith 
that God has assigned. Now, Paul tips his hat at the beginning here of where he's about to go. He talks about the grace given to me. Um, the word grace is the word charis in Greek, and he's referring to, in just a moment, the charismata, which is the gifts of grace. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. Um, there's these gifts that he's beginning to talk about and, and the, the capacities that people have. But before he gets to this, he says, listen, before I get to this, before I talk about gifts, before I get to stretching your faith, I have to say something. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think Instead, he says, have sober judgment. Sober literally means he's challenging us to think accurately about ourselves, to think accurately, not too highly of yourself, not too low of yourself. So what Paul is talking about here is really self-regard. It's, self, uh, it's, it, it's, it's self-esteem, you might say. It's self-perception. And he's saying, when you consider yourself, I want you to be accurate. Think about yourself in the right way. Don't think too highly. For some of us, that's our tendency. We think too highly of ourselves. But it also means don't think too lowly. And for others of us, that's our tendency to think too lowly of ourselves. He's saying, no, no, I want you to have the right perspective, that sweet spot, understanding of who you are. This is challenging for us because the, the world has an image that we develop for ourselves that's based on our effort and our achievement. That's how the world shapes our identity. Um, I'm good because I do this or that thing, or I'm bad because I did this or that thing. Uh, in our culture, if you exceed the standard, then you can feel superior to people around you. But if you fail, then you feel inferior to the people that are around you. That's the way our cultural paradigm works. But Christians, we have access to a completely different way of developing our identity. Um, the, gospel, the gospel says we're broken. That's a really hard part about Christianity. The gospel says we're broken people. We make mistakes. We have a sin nature. Paul's talked about that through the book of Romans. But simultaneously, the gospel also says you are completely loved and accepted. And so it does something interesting in us. In one moment, it humbles us because we know that we're broken, but then it also raises us up because we understand that we're loved. And so when we're living in the gospel, we have this weird contradiction of being humble and confident because of the love of God. That's what the gospel does in us. Which means this, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't hate yourself. You can't hate yourself. And if you hate yourself, it means you've not brought the gospel and all of what it means into your life. You've not fully understood the love and acceptance, the unconditional love that God has for you. So what makes a person a Christian is not in any way, shape, or form how good they are. It's not about being good. When we get fixated on that, it results in very insecure people. People who either think way too lowly of themselves because we can never measure up, or somehow we do a few good things and we think too highly of ourselves. And Paul says, be sober. Be aware you're broken, but you're also incredibly loved. And when you get to that place where you have that sweet spot understanding, then you move forward. So what motivates us in that space? I just want to refer to last week. Last week, this chapter opens up with uh, Paul talking about us being living sacrifices. What's the motivating idea behind us? What is the operational principle of being this person who thinks soberly about themselves? They understand that they are a living sacrifice. 
that we have laid down our life, that we've submitted leadership of who we are to somebody other than ourselves. Thinking accurately means you know who you are, you know what has been done for you, and you know how your life is supposed to be used. That's what he's saying. And there's a transformation that takes place when we lean into that. So then he goes on. He says this, and then he moves on, and he gives us this illustration describing how we're supposed to live as a person who has an accurate view of who they are. Verse 4, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So I want to point a couple things out here. First of all, he uses two words together that we never put together in our culture. We and one. We and one, we and one. Yes, you're an individual, but we are a we together. He says that we are one body. And what he's saying, which some of this might be new for some of you and weird for those of you that are new to church, but what he's saying is that the church or people who are following Jesus, we are one. We are one body. And he continues to say this, we are one body in Christ. Now, this isn't an illustration that Paul actually just made up. Like, hmm, how do I illustrate this? This was actually an illustration or a terminology that was used in the Roman Empire at the time. The Roman Empire, the state of Rome, was called the body of the emperor. If the Caesar was in Rome, then all of the land was considered the body, or the state was considered the body of the emperor. So the Roman people that Paul's writing to, they've already heard this terminology. They've been operating this way, and now he goes, hey, just like there's this emperor, and they call us the body of the emperor. You are the body of Christ. He borrows this imagery to refer to a new society that's rising up. Think about how this felt to them. Here they lived as the body of the emperor, and now he says, in this society, in this culture, you are actually the body of Christ. If before you represented the emperor, now you represent the person of Jesus. He says we are members, we are parts of this. And he goes on in just a moment to describe the gifts that we've been given to be a part of that body. The abilities, the skills, the experiences that make us who we are. Again, this, this, is, uh, this is not a new idea to our culture. Our culture has all sorts of ideas about our uniqueness and our gifts and our abilities. Uh, in our culture, it's, it's completely normal. In that culture, it was normal. That aspect of what Paul is talking about, that's actually not countercultural. That idea that you and I all have different gifts and abilities and stories and that they actually matter, that's not a new concept. But where we part ways is when it comes to the purpose of those things. Culture talks about how we can leverage our individuality or our gifts or our our skills for personal gain. That's where our, our culture focuses. How can you get that job you always wanted? How can you get the education that you're longing for? How can you do the things that you want to do? How do you fulfill yourself and make yourself happy by using who you are? How do you take what makes you special and leverage that for your individual success? That's what our culture does. And that's where we part ways with what Paul is describing here. He's saying, don't think that you have these gifts and abilities so that you're special, so that, so that you can leverage them for who you are and what you've done. He says, no, 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 that's, that's not it. Paul says, this is, this is not to say because I have this, I'm special or I'm better than you. Paul says this to say, 
You have been given these gifts because you are a part of the body of Christ. You are all individual parts of this body. So Paul not only uses this illustration to redefine us, but he also uses it to to redefine our relationship to Jesus. And, And this is where our faith really, really begins to grow. This is where the trust aspect begins to be stretched as we understand ourselves. Um, You've probably heard the idea of a head of state, like the Caesar was the head of state, he was the head of the body. When heads of state get together, they represent groups of people that they are leading. So Paul uses this imagery again, and he refers numerous places, numerous times, to, to Jesus being the head of the body, the church. Well, why is that significant? Well, the head is where you get your marching orders, The head is where you get your motive. It's where you get your identity. It's where you get your rationale for living, like why am I here? And so when Jesus is the head, that means your motive for living. That means your identity. That means your rationale for why you're here all comes from him. We physically represent him in this world when we work together in this unified harmony. We find our part. We complement others in cooperation, and we are the body of Christ. We are his body. The strange thing is, because of the cultural realities that we live in today, we've actually reversed the way we think about this. Even the way we think about becoming a Jesus follower, the language that we've used in modernity, I think messes with us because we invite Jesus into our body. When Paul says, you're actually becoming a part of his body. Like, we're the head. And we go, Jesus, I'd like you to join me and be a part of my story here. Be a part of my body. Like, he's an extension of me getting things done on my behalf. Like, Jesus, may my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like, we invite him, like, Jesus, come on in. Come be a part of my body. Come be a part of my life so that I can get what I want. And it's the exact opposite of what Paul's describing. So not only are we encouraged to think accurately about ourselves, not only are we encouraged to identify our gifts, but then he says, We aren't the ones who determine how they get used. Jesus does. That's where the faith thing grows. That's where this trust dynamic increases because I have to trust him and say, I'm going to let you determine how I use my life. And that takes amazing trust, doesn't it? That's where the faith comes in. Because you might not get paid. You You might not get credit. It might cost you something. It might not pad your resume. You may not get a promotion because of it. But that's not what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means that you look at what you've got. You look at your story and your gifts and your abilities, and you put it in front of him and go, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Who do you want me to be? That's what it means. And right about the moment you go, okay, I think I can do that, Paul just levels up one more level on us. Look at verse 5 again. He says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So not only do you belong to Jesus, but you belong to each other. You belong to each other. This, This is what we've lost in our culture these days. The body is committed to one another. 
Our radical individualism has separated us from the body that we're supposed to be a part of. Paul is describing a high degree of commitment. Like we are parts of one another. We're committed to one another. We need one another. There's this high level of loyalty. And although, yes, we can represent Christ by ourselves, we actually represent Christ the best in community. In community, people see Jesus in us better than they see Jesus in just me. Are you with me on this? So you can be out there, and you can be loving people, and you can represent Christ, but, but you're going to, people are going to get to know who Jesus is when they meet us, when they meet the whole body. It's like, it's like when you're dating. Uh, some of you, like, this is more present for you. For me, I have to, like, get out a history book to remember when I was dating. Um, but when you're dating at some point, you know that day when you meet the family of the person you're dating? You guys remember that day? Some of you, that, some of you have memories that are that good, right? Some of you, you haven't met the family yet. <laughs> That's always awkward. Like, why haven't I met your parents yet? Because I'm just still waiting. <laughs> you got to prove yourself first, right? But you remember that day. Like, you gotta, eventually you've got to go meet the family to find out how weird these people really are. Like, where did this person come from? And there's something you learn. Ladies, let me give you some advice. You want to find out how he treats your mom or his mom or his sister. How does he treat his family? That's going to tell you a lot how he's going to treat you and your family, right? So you got to go meet the parents at some point. And when you do, you learn something about somebody. When people meet the body of Jesus, they learn something about who Jesus is when they meet all of us, not just one of us, all of us. We demonstrate the love of Christ as a community. That means there's going to be some tension sometimes. There's going to be this, this tension for unity and, and diversity. That's, there's going to be tension in this. We, we have to be unified. We have to, we have to celebrate the differences between us, that we're different, that there's a diversity among us. Um, by the way, div- celebrating looks very different than tolerating, right? Sometimes I think we think, like, tolerating is somehow unity or something, right? Like, imagine that. Imagine if I came to you and I said, you know, I know you're different than me. In fact, um, you're different enough that uh, you make me a little uncomfortable, but I want you to know the good news is I'm getting really good at tolerating you these days. Like, I'm just like, I'm tolerating you and your differences so much better than I used to. Like, that's not encouraging. Don't ever tell somebody that, right? I can tolerate you now. Wow. That doesn't build me up. So the body, it's not just a, a metaphor of unity. It's also a metaphor for diversity. There are different parts of the body with different functions. We have to move beyond tolerating and move to celebrating. It's not just it's like good that we can be together, but like are we unified as a body, celebrating the differences, appreciating the differences? Can't demand that everybody act like, think like, talk like, be like me. That's, just, that's like a body that has just all ears or all eyes or all feet. So, so the body should be this diverse gifts and abilities and stories and capacities, all these different things. And, and that's what he goes on to say in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 6. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. So we're different people. We have different gifts. We have different stories. We have different experiences Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. By the way, there's seven gifts that are listed there. 
And uh, let me just say this. These are representative. These are illustrative. These are not intended to be exhaustive. Um, people have a tendency to take a list like this and they say, oh, here are the seven gifts that God gives people. Which one do you have? So we're going to give you a 45-minute test. You're going to take it. And after you're done, we're going to tell you which one you're best at, right? That's what we do. Paul isn't writing just, this is a Bible understanding thing I want you to know. Paul is not writing this list of all the gifts to, to give us an exhaustive understanding of the gifts that God gives us. It's representative. It's illustrative. How do we know? Well, in 1 Corinthians, he gives a little different list. And in Ephesians, another little different list. And in, and in 1 Peter chapter 4, there's another list. And can you imagine if all those different groups of people that got those letters, like, were fighting about which gifts, and they got together one day, like, wait a second, you guys have different lists than we do. Like, that would be a big issue, right? What's the point of this? What have we done? Do we take all the lists and say, okay, here they are? That's not what Paul was doing. Um, like, when Paul's writing and he writes a list of broken behavior, things that humans do, do you look and go, okay, none of mine are there, so I guess I'm good? Was he like, Paul didn't write to cover all the bad stuff people do. He just said, hey, there's some stuff we do, and there's some stuff that he's not writing about, and we know what it is, right? Or, or like when he talks about the way God works, God works like this, and then all of a sudden God works a way that doesn't look like that, and then we go, well, that's not, Paul didn't tell us that God works that way, and he, would, he doesn't do that, right? Even when he talks about how to live out love, in the next few verses, uh, he's going to give us ways that we love people, right? Those are representative, and certainly not every aspect of who you are is summed up in the list. So the point is this, there are things about your story there are things about your abilities. You have talents, who you are physically, who you are mentally. There are things that you are good at. And the point is, all of those things are gifts. You have been given gifts. You've been given a life, a heartbeat, a story. You can write a story with your life. And no one spiritual gift is the gift that all Christ followers should manifest. There's one gift. There's not one gift that Paul goes, by the way, everybody should be doing this. There's only one thing that everybody should be doing. We should all have the love ethic of Jesus. That's the one thing all of us should be doing, is loving people the way that Jesus loved people. So whatever your, whatever your gift is, use it. And there's joy when you use it. When, when you use your story, your life, there's joy. But, but don't make that joy make you think that everybody should be doing what you're doing. Are you with me on this? Like... Um, when I teach, when I, when I, when I do this, there, there, by the way, I don't like getting up in front of crowds of people. I know that's hard to believe, but I get sick every single Sunday morning. Like, I can't eat breakfast in the morning before I get here, because I'll just be sick to my stomach. It makes me really nervous to do this, but here's the thing. When I get done on a Sunday, I oftentimes be driving home, and I'll just go, you know what, as hard as that is for me to get up in front of people, Lord, when I do that, I know it's the thing you made me to do. Like, I just know this is, like, what I'm supposed to do. Now, imagine if I did that, and I'm like, this makes me feel so purposeful and so good. I think everybody should teach on Sunday. So we're going to start a rotation. And we're, Matt, you're up next week. And, and KJ, you're up the week after that, right? And Jamie, then you're going to be up. You know what we call that? How to kill a church in 30 minutes or less, right? Because <laughs> you're going to be like, I'm not showing up next week if I'm speaking. Like, I'm not going to do that because I'm not called to speak, right? It's really important that we understand this. We all have different gifts and abilities. And let me also say this because it's, it's an issue in our culture. 
Just because my gift happens to put me up here in front of you doesn't make me any different, doesn't make me any better, doesn't make me any holier, doesn't make me any more special than you. Your gifts and your abilities are right on par and equal with mine. There's nothing that could be further from the truth than the idea that somehow because you have this gift, you're more loved or more special or God thinks differently. It's level playing field. Are you you with me on this? Okay, I want to make sure we're clear on that one. We celebrate the diversity in the body of Christ. Paul's, Paul's whole point is you're a part of a body, so are you an active part of the body? Um, he, he understood this. He understood that if, if we didn't just believe in the body of Christ, but if we actually lived as the body of Christ, then our faith would be, would be stretched and that we would grow like the tension of letting somebody else call the shots, the tension of saying, Lord, you can use my life, the tension of getting outside of your comfort zone, the the tension of doing things that you might not profit from, that that tension is going to cause you to trust God more. And the more you trust God with your life, the more intimacy you will have with God. I'll just tell you this. One of the reasons I'm doing what I do today is that there was a particular time in life when somebody invited me to do this. I, I, I was going to be a professor. I, I thought, I'm going to go to a, a university because you don't have to... High school teachers tend to be nice, but professors, they don't tend to be... You don't have to be nice to your students, and so I thought, that's great. So I thought, I'll be a professor and, uh, and then have summers off anyways. And uh, sorry to anyone that's a professor out there. You're not all mean, but mine were. Um, <laughs> and then somebody said, hey, I, I know you're going to be a teacher. Why don't you teach in the church, and I did it one time, and I was in this particular season of my life, and I found joy in it, and I, but then I had to trust God, and it was like, because of the time of my life that it happened, I was like, whoa, should I be doing something different, and I started trusting God in a way that I had never trusted God before. Just because you're 20 years into a teaching career, or you're 15 years into a marketing career, or you're seven years into an accounting career, it does not mean you're on the sideline. Like, yeah, I'm going to get 50-yard line seats and some popcorn. I'm going to hang back and watch those people do the church thing. No. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter where God has placed you and assigned you and dropped you in this crazy story that we're living, your, your faith is going to grow when you begin to use your gifts and your story and your abilities and your talents in ways that advance the message and the ministry of Jesus. Amen? Some of you, you know this because you're already in it and you're doing it, and I commend you. Some of you, you had some experiences back in the past, but it's been a long time, and so there's like a faint memory, and for some of you, this is brand new, but let me just say, all of us are called, we're called to be like hosts, of Jesus wherever we go. Jesus said, I give you my spirit. We take his spirit and we go wherever we go and we are hosts of him and we are his body. That's what Paul is saying. And so the invitation, I'm gonna use Joe's word from earlier, is to activate yourself in the body of Jesus. Are you an active part of the body of Christ? Is your faith growing because you're saying, use my story? That's what he's calling us to do. Would you stand with me? If you're new with us, there's a thing we do called a benediction. The church has been doing it for centuries. And it's just a simple blessing that uh, 
I offer, in, in the way we signify this, is you just put out your hands to receive it, and I'll raise mine to offer it. May you be men and women who fully receive and understand and live in the unconditional love and grace that God has given you. And may you live your lives, these beautiful stories that he's woven together for him. May you be the body of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.